like my classic thing is to take the list of places to go, which is now hidden under a whole bunch of ads and sales and services on TripAdvisor, didn't used to be, and flip it and go to like the bottom half of places to go, you find a lot of really interesting places. Ah. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today is part of my ongoing series of interviews with people I quote in my new book, The Vagabond's Way. I talk with New York Times travel writer Seth Kugel, whose 2018 book, Rediscovering Travel, is quoted in several sections of my new book. Together we talk about how commercial travel writing can never truly evoke the ragged spontaneity and fluidity of vagabonding travel. We talk about the way services like Airbnb can make entire neighborhoods of popular tourist cities feel less like themselves. We talk about how to travel to places where you don't fully know the language and local people often don't speak English, places like Sao Paulo, Brazil, where Seth lives for part of each year. We talk about the merits of going to places that haven't been covered by travel media or crowdsourced travel websites, and how risking being a fool in a new place can help you to get to know it in a more intimate and open-hearted way. Our conversation took place in a coffee shop near Madison Square Park in Manhattan, so please pardon the dim rumble of people coming and going. Let's listen in. March 14th, and the chapter is the travel industry is here to help. Feel free to ignore it. And the epigram is you. The travel industry has developed cheaper mass-produced products to be as tempting as possible to consumers, sometimes disregarding what is good for them. Seth Kugel in Rediscovering Travel 2018. 2,000 years ago, there were no passenger ships, so people who needed to travel bought passage on merchant vessels. As part of the bargain, these travelers were expected to bring their own supplies and help out with onboard tasks. Most improved roads existed to expedite government business, and most inns doubled as brothels. And few people traveled for travel's sake. Travel was thus perceived to be as difficult and utilitarian as the services and technologies that enabled it. This didn't change significantly until the 19th century, when an emergent middle class created a self-contained travel industry focused on leisure, and people in industrialized nations came to see travel as a lifestyle option rather than a privilege. The more travel was seen as a consumer act, the more it was expected to deliver a standardized consumer product. Yet as Seth Kugel pointed out in Rediscovering Travel, the notion that, quote, everything will be conveniently packaged, familiar, and controlled aside from a carefully monitored IV drip of novelty and exoticism, end quote, is at odds with the spontaneous discoveries that have always made travel worthwhile. Though it's nice that world travelers are no longer required to sleep in brothels and hitch rides on merchant ships, it's good to remember that the modern travel industry is designed to deliver efficiencies rather than epiphanies, certainties rather than serendipities. Use it as a tool that helps convey you around the world, but endeavor to break out of its market research assumptions of what it thinks you might want and develop your own instincts for how your journey will take shape. So I think one thing I enjoyed about your book was you as a person who writes about the travel industry sort of had a perspective on that travel industry and you saw how it shaped the assumptions we went into to Journeys 4. Yeah, I mean, now, even a few years later, when I look at the algorithms behind Instagram and social media, it's all pushing you towards a certain experience and you have to fight against that to not be pushed into the whole, like, the cattle that are being driven in a certain direction. And travel has been like that for a while now. There's top 10 lists and glossy um, photos all over the place wherever you look. And you have to figure out a way to not be a sucker for that. Because 
you're just being spoon-fed a certain experience. And if that is the kind of thing you want to do, there are people who just want to just be given an experience. But I think that anyone who's listening to this or who's reading your book or who's really into travel knows that the real good travel stories come when you're not doing what everyone else is doing. And so you have to really actively fight against that these days. What were your first travels like? Were you a backpacker guy or did you, a student traveler? How did you first experience travel? Um, when I, between, you know what, I was lucky enough that my parents took me on a few trips and my first ever trip, I grew up in Massachusetts and we traded houses with a family in the outskirts of London. And so, what I mean, now that I haven't really even thought about that before, but wow, when you talk about today and Airbnb and trying to stay in local people's homes and get away from the, the hotels and the tourist centers, that was a pretty good model. We went, we stayed for a couple days with them before they left for our house, and we lived for a month in uh, Blackheath. I remember it was SE3 was the postal code. And it was definitely outside of, maybe it was a part of London, but it was not in London, London. And we just sort of set up a daily routine for living and we'd go into town and do touristy stuff, but at night we would come back and be in a, be in a suburb. And I think that was pretty influential. My parents loved to travel and didn't really travel when I was a little kid. And then... Yeah, between about 10 and 14, I went on a couple of trips, and I think learned to travel from them. Uh, I just remember, I used to love photography, and I would be so obsessed with like, taking the perfect picture of, I don't know, the Tower of London, say. And my father would just be like, no, you got to take a picture of the people. The people are the interesting thing. And now I realize, of course, he was completely right. When I look at my pictures that I still have from those old travels, they're really boring because I was like waiting till all the people left. Boy, I would love to see what people were wearing in those days, or what quirky British people looked like, or what other tourists looked like. But so I think, I mean, I did travel in college. That was when I first traveled on my own. I did a semester in Paris, lived with a French family, and did a semester in Paris, and then did the thing, the Eurail Pass, kind of a, a thing. So backpacking, um, in not literally. I don't think I maybe I did have a backpack. I don't even remember. But that sort of sort of thing. And then after college, my real main travel experiences were visiting the families of the students I taught in New York City. So I had mostly Dominican students from the Dominican Republic. And for the next few years, like age twenty-two to twenty-six or twenty-seven, I mostly went to Latin America and mostly to the Dominican Republic and like looked up my students' grandparents hmm. and often stayed with them. Yeah, there's actually a chapter in this book that uses the example of my sister who goes to Moldova. Why? Well, one of her students was Moldovan. Um, Great. She, she teaches university English and nobody goes to Moldova. Nobody flies across an ocean to visit Moldova. Um, but that was a lens that sort of goes beyond these assumptions that the travel industry convinces us that we want I'm not sure what the travel industry would convince us about Moldova because we hear nothing about it. But when she traveled there, uh, Moldova, she liked, she uh, met, loved soup. So she sort of went around Moldova eating soup. Oh, perfect. I, yeah. always, I always look for a theme to, tr to, to like give a little structure to your travel since you're not structuring it around the advice in the guidebook or the, the top 10 trip advisor things to do. 
structured around something. I love coffee sometimes, and that's an easy one because everybody loves coffee pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Um, or desserts. Yeah. Or something like that. So, and and I'm all for Moldova. I mean, as soon as you said Moldova, I'm like, yeah, Moldova. That sounds great. Um, I think it's right next to Ukraine, actually, right? Yeah. I remember um, the last thing I read about it was that there were Ukrainian refugees coming into Moldova. It's right next to the Ukraine, but it's culturally more Russian than Ukraine. Um, and in fact, there's a part of Moldova which is called Transnistria. Ah, it's like a pseudo-independent country, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think they still use Soviet money, or at least they have recently. Oh, that's amazing. So there's, there's another place to put on your list. I went to a semi-controversially uh, autonomous place, which is Norabov Karabakh, I think. Yeah, it's in, yeah. Uh, Out by it's either Armenia or Azerbaijan, depending mm -hmm. on you know what side you're on. And uh, I went when it was controlled by Armenia, and some Armenian friends I had made took me there, and as a result, I'm banned from Azerbaijan for life. Wow. And I didn't really realize what I was stepping into, yeah. um, but anything like that, I want to go. Yeah. Well, I think there's an extent to which tourists sort of certify the political authority of their hosts, you know? And so I've heard that like in, in parts of Thailand that are culturally different than central Thailand around Bangkok, the hill tribes live in the north are certified as Thai by the fact that tourists with passports are visiting this part as a part of Thailand, even though these people speak different languages. Hmm. And that's just one example. I mean, I'm sure that there's many colonial aspects, places that were countries that were created for colonial reasons, that the central authority is underpinned not just by colonial history, um, Iraq being a great example, where tourists, actually that's not a great example because tourists don't go to Iraq, but, okay. but the tourist presence of places um, is going to certify the political objectives of the host, which is why you are banned from Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's interesting that you had such a, a direct hospitality relationship with your early travels, that you, it was a home exchange and then visiting your students because the tourist industry is sort of a corporatization of hospitality. You know, it's sort of yeah. taking what used to exist at the level of hospitality and making it more uh, consumable, like creating comforts and familiarities that don't require personal relationships. So it's interesting that your early travels came out of actual personal relationships. And it's funny that even something like Airbnb, which started out as trying to give you the experience of being in someone else's home, is now mostly not really someone else's home at all. It's some sort of management company that runs someone's investment property. And, and I've always tried to stay in places that are really run by the people that own them. But it's when I wrote about that, people have written back and said, screw that, I don't want to deal with the problems of like someone who break their favorite thing. I want to stay in a place that's just like generic and have it be cheaper than a hotel, which Airbnb sometimes often is as well. So, and I see that point as well uh, you know travel can be messy and if you don't want it to be messy you want to avoid you know it's funny you, you want it you're gonna have to avoid a lot of those, that personal element because people are messy well it's an interesting wrinkle because you know Marco Duramo he, I think he, his book was called a world in a selfie I, I quoted in the vagabond's way um, he's Italian but he talks about how certain certain parts of Rome and Paris on the verge of becoming Airbnb ghettos. Oh. Because the local hardware store is now a souvenir store, and the people who work and cater to tourists don't live in that neighborhood. It has the look of a neighborhoody place, but it isn't neighborhood. I couldn't agree more. I, I will nominate 
the Principe Real neighborhood of Lisbon for, for that, at least as of like five years ago. I couldn't believe how many Airbnb, Airbnbs were there. And even there were storefront Airbnb management companies, not Airbnb specifically, but storefront vacation. You know, come to us if you don't want to live here anymore and you want to rent it out to tourists. Wow, wow. And of course, they're always the most beautiful neighborhoods. Right. Yeah, so you're here to, to experience the infrastructure, but it no longer has the, the culture, as much of the culture that built the infrastructure. Look at it another way. It's like, it's like a, a, a perfect Epcot. It's an actual tourist attraction that really did used to be a neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, and I think this happens at many levels. It's not just Lisbon and Rome and Paris, because um, I'm from Wichita. My wife is from rural Kansas, and I wanted to when we were spending the night there, I wanted to get an Airbnb in this neighborhood, which is a famous part of the Douglas district. They used to drive cattle down the street, and then it became a business district. And when Allen Ginsberg came through and wrote Wichita Vortex Sutra, he stayed within a few blocks of where we were staying. And we went into the place, and my wife was like, yeah, this looks like any other place. You know, the TV has a pause button that shows goldfish, and everything was very, very Bed Bath & Beyond. Like, there was nothing that evoked the historicity, the Wichita historicalness of that part of Douglas Avenue. And so yeah. it wasn't like they were, well, in fact, that, that area hasn't been residential for a while. And so I thought it would be fun to stay in a more industrial stretch of the city. But it, it was in an industrial context, but not in a way that felt true to where it was from. If that makes sense, the yeah, placeness yeah. of places is being leached out. In yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there's, I, I don't know if there's formally this, but I imagine that there's some, like, website you go to that's like, furnish your Airbnb, and then, like, click here. Do you want <laughs> industrial chic? Do you want homey Midwestern? And, and well, just because I do a lot of Airbnb staying in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and you see a lot of, a lot of scenes of Paris up on posters, like, you know, there's just, like, Paris stuff. Oh, what is this Paris stuff? And I, I think it's like the idea of what they think you want if you're staying in a place, like pseudo homey. Like right. I remember one place I stayed where I, and I really do try to stay in a place that looks like someone really lives there for okay. a part of the year. Because um, I just think it's cool and I like seeing if they lock their closet so I can go see what's in there and all that kind of stuff. Sort of kidding. Um, and I thought I was sure it was a, a someone's real home, and I went and I was completely duped. Okay. And there was not even like a stove, or it was you know just like a microwave, and it had been pretty well decorated. That on on paper in the photos, anyway, mm. it looked like someone's home, but it wasn't. Still was fine, but again, it's not like this ruins my trip. Right. It's just it's one detail. The trip would be better if I were staying in a place where you know sort of accidentally really looked like a place a real person lived because, you know, I don't know, the paint was chipped in a certain way and the, the bookshelf, they hadn't taken all their books down so I could see what they were reading, you know, at some point, or see what they weren't reading. If you go to my apartment, it's all the books I haven't read from college. Right, right. Did they have a little yellow strip, a little used strip oh, from the college yes. bookstore? Remember those? Yes. Some of them definitely have that. Like younger listeners won't know what, they, what we're talking about. because well, they don't know what a book is. Right, right, right. It's, it, it's all on their phone. It's funny, you were talking, I mean, they have apps for social media that can make you look handsome or more beautiful in your selfies. They need an Airbnb app that, automa that auto-populates books and shelves and, and, and Persian rugs in your house, even if you don't actually have those. 
Yes, and you know, it kind of bugs me that some the people seem to get professional photographs done of their Airbnbs. I, I'd rather see you snap. First of all, they have these photographs that make the place look huge when it's right. tiny. Right. I kind of like the one where you can see the person in the mirror, you know, with right. their phone. Right. Hopefully, like they have this. their pants on. Exactly. So, um, you know, pl this pluses and this minuses with all of all of these things, but. Well, it's funny that that is the result of tourist desire, and your tourist desire is a, a facsimile of home. Yet, I think a lot of tourists, maybe a reason that there's a lot of beigeness in Airbnb districts of neighborhoods that were used to be industrial or very cultural, are that at the end of the day, people don't like the placeness of other places. They mm -hmm. like, at the end of the day of walking through Lisbon, they like to go to a place that could be Orlando, right? right. Or could be Bozeman. <clears throat> Mm. And I say it in a snarky way, but I think that we're always, I mean, the tourist industry sort of calls on tourist desire. I mean, the algorithms also call on desires. Unfortunately, they're sort of lower on our brainstem. Um, and so it feels like we're always beholden to that in a while, yet it feels like one sort of point of this conversation is to find that human aspect of a place, find the host family or the metaphorical equivalent of it, maybe? Yeah. Well, I mean, I always think of the most overused cliche in all of travel, which is when something's off the beaten path. And the funny thing is, you always will hear people say, oh, I love to go off the beaten path. But in reality, people don't really want to go too far off the beaten path. Yeah. Because then you start, like, eating raw liver and, you know, staying in very uncomfortable places for your own sort of set of, 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 um, of standards. And, you know, I think that people really want to be just slightly off the beaten path in that they're on the, the path beaten by slightly more adventurous travelers instead of going really far out because that involves risk. I think one of the big problems with travel, which is great if you have six months or a year to travel, but most people don't, is that people really need their travel experience to be great. Mm. And to have it be really great, you need to take some risks that risk it being terrible. Oh, that's that good. Makes sense. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, if you have a week, I mean, Americans are screwed. Uh, you know, so many people go on week-long vacations, and I will. I remember giving a, when my book came out. I remember being giving a talk and saying, "Hey, this is what I did here, and this is what I did there, and look how well it worked out." You know, I took a chance. I went the other direction. I I spoke to a stranger. And someone came up to me afterwards, like, I love this, it's totally my philosophy, but I get two weeks off a year, hmm. and I'm taking my wife and kids, yeah. and it's really got to be perfect. Yeah. But of course, it's, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be like a, a controlled perfect, which is fine, I get it. I tell people like that to take like one or two days and try to have an adventure. Yeah. I think it's perfect is sort of a Yelp review perfect. You know, we sort of treat a destination as if it was a pair of sneakers, um, or a nice handbag or something. And, you know, thinking that travel is something you can be disappointed by is sort of superimposing the Yelp attitude, the consumer attitude uh, to a place. It's funny, I'm curious to know about, since you stay for long periods of time in Brazil, if that gives you a perspective on the short-term tourism experience, because in The Vagabond's Way, I quote the novelist Nancy Mitford, I think her name is Nancy Mitford, she based herself in Venice after World War II, and she sort of talked about how the tourists do talk about getting off the beaten trail, but she saw them, and they that trail is so deep that like <laughs> two blocks in either direction, there's no other tourists. You know, and as a as a temporary local, she was able to see that short-term tourism from the outside, and hear both the idiosyncrasies of its rhetoric and sort of see the the reflexive habits 
Have you seen this from the outside, or is Sao Paulo not enough of a tourist well, no, city? I mean, it's not that big of a tourist city, but there are definitely standard touristy places to go. And, 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 and of course you see it. I mean, you can't really avoid it. Brazil has another problem, which is that not that many people speak so good, such good English. Mm. So once you get off the beaten path, so to speak, <laughs> right. um, you're going to confront a language barrier, mm. but and that's really off-putting to some people. And I don't think it should be. I to some travelers. To some travelers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that it doesn't have to be. You can get along, it's, but it's very nerve-wracking if you're not quite sure you know, whether you're going to be able to communicate with someone. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of uh, extra extroversion, if that's extrovertedness. Mm. And I think you can do it, and people don't do it. And also, Brazil has a reputation of being a little dangerous, so you don't want to go straight too far off uh, the, the tourist trail either. So it's, it's a mixed bag, but there's plenty of places you can go. You just need a little bit of advice. You need someone to say yes or no. You can or cannot go to that neighborhood. But sure, people. And in Rio, it sort of suffers from the same problem. Rio is even more dangerous than Sao Paulo for, for tourists. and. So you want people to be adventurous, but you don't. You want them to check to make sure where they're going is not going to get them into trouble. So safety, there's a real issue with safety, obviously. But I think some people look at a place and they say, well, I don't feel, I don't know if that's safe. And what they really mean is, I don't know if I'm going to feel comfortable getting out of my shell and being extroverted and trying to speak as well as I can in a foreign language or trying to speak some basic English. People are sort of, places are socially risky. There are other places that literally are risky that you don't want to go to. Right. Yeah, I guess social risks are important ones, important risks to take. And one of my early travel tools that has come in handy is something I learned teaching English as a foreign language in Korea. I, I learned to speak slowly and simply and, and, and sort of realize how people with very limited English hear it and how they say it. And yeah. It made me much braver in my interactions yes. with non-native speakers. People can be very bad at speaking English with people who don't speak English. And it's sort of, I, you've had obviously the direct experience with that. I think I've had a lot of indirect experience with just trial and error. And you, or I've had experience of learning other languages and realizing, you know, why can I understand this one person speaking Spanish but not this other person? It's, they're doing something on purpose. They're using, mm. you know, they're code they're, switching. They're 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 helping me oh, by oh, right. they're helping me by using simpler yeah, language yeah. and speaking more slowly. And yeah, you gotta learn to do that because you can really communicate with just about anyone. I mean, I my my favorite example is just meeting this Turkish family where nobody spoke English, and somehow we had a conversation. I don't know how it happened, and I didn't have Google Translate with me. We we started. We figured we could talk about soccer stars. Okay. And so, because right. the names were international enough. Mm -hmm. And then we just got into more and more talking, and somehow I realized it was a pistachio farmer. I left, and I knew for a fact that an oil company had come by to test if there were oil in his pistachio fields. But I don't know how we communicated that, because we weren't huh. speaking English and we weren't speaking Turkish exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, huh, somehow we got that across. So you do need to develop your skills as someone who wants to get along in a place where people's English isn't so great. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's ways to shortcut language and realize it's not just verbal. There's, there's body language, there's facial oh, expressions. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I quote uh, William Finnegan, if you read The Barbarian Days, the surfer memoir, 
He talks about being in the South. Your whole book is basically full of books I haven't read, <laughs> right? but I should. This can expand your library okay. of unread books. Okay. Um, yeah, but he, he sort of talks about the, the head tilt position in Fiji, I think, has like, it's like that cliche about 60 words for snow in, in, in northern regions, that basically you sort of express your interest in the topic by the tilt of your head. And the, the head tilt in, in this part of the South Pacific has a richness that body language does in other parts of the world and helped him sort of understand the intensity, if not the content of the conversation. I love that. Yeah. I love it. Never heard of that before. I'm going to definitely look that up. It's fascinating. It, it is. And I think there's, there's, I think there's intersemiotic and interlingual communication. It's in the book, but I don't have it committed to memory. It's the idea that there's linguistic communication, but then there's this, the non-linguistic, I think it's, I think it's interseminal, intersemiotic language, which involves gestures and things like well, that. Well, and I think the overall lesson from that is, wherever you're going, the people don't communicate like you are used to back home, and you just have to realize that everything you say, everything you're doing, every way you're, even, even smiling is this crazy thing where everyone says, why are Americans always smiling all the time? And you do sort of have to realize that, that this is, might put some people off. I, I just, you just gotta realize that you're an idiot. When you you're the equivalent of an idiot, whenever you're in a foreign place, and just realize that tons of things you're doing, even though you didn't even realize you could do them any differently, like tilting your head, are making you look like a foreigner and like a doofus. I think embracing that foolishness, that awkwardness, that adolescent out of placeness Absolutely. is a key corner to turn as a traveler. I mean, you have to be so humble and just realize that anything you do could offend someone. Anything you do um, could just be inappropriate. You think you're communicating one thing, but you're communicating another thing. And that's just, that's, if you want to travel in these places in these ways, then that's your role. I think this is a key thing to remember in the social media era where we sort of perform a certain kind of perfection. We don't want to seem like someone who's being offensive or making mistakes. We sort of split hairs on what exactly is offensive in this performative cyber way that when in fact being out of place and being a fool and maybe being a little bit offensive sometimes is what gets you into a culture in a way that goes beyond what you're looking at on your phone. Well, yeah, you have, well, first of all, you definitely have to abandon all of the splitting hairs over meaning that exists back home and just go far more general. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious that, um, like, I first found your work in the New York Times, and there's a level at which there has to be a generalized depiction of travel for the Times audience that might only have a few days or might be traveling with kids or might yeah. actually be looking for recommendations. And you can't literally say, just go be a fool just find a local host family. How have you balanced that part of your writing life with how you really like to travel, and has that ever been a challenge? Uh, well, it's always been a challenge, and a lot of the challenge is at the level of between me and the editors, who I would just, yeah, I'd like to go just do whatever and write about what happened. Yeah. Uh, and I realize that I can't exactly do that, but along the margins, it's me kind of versus the editors, not in a bad way, but I try to push it a little further and they push it a little back because they know what the readers need. I kind of count on them to guide me and, and if I get told eight straight articles that I need to give more prices 
and like a few different options for hotels, well then I need to do, do that. But I've always tried to sort of, I guess, lead by example in a way. Like I, I always try to have some parts of the story that are being a little bit more adventurous, some parts of the story that are interacting with people. And luckily when I did the Frugal Traveler column, which was a first person column, I did have a lot of um, independence in what I did once I got to a place. That said, you still need to fill it with tips on here's a restaurant and here's a what this is what this museum is like. I was trying to in between the lines show the way I like to travel, and obviously not everyone agrees with me. So it's kind of a take it or leave it kind of a thing. Like cool. you got your in, you got your um, you got a good story, you got some tips. If you also want to take in the sort of this is the way I travel, fine. If you don't, if it's not your thing, no problem at all. And a lot of people would say to me, boy, uh, I really loved your article. I would never do that. Right. But I, I did love it. And I did do a, a few, and also there's, there's time. So you, know, you do a good story on Naples and you give a lot of great advice. But then I did about three or four stories over like five or six years where I literally went to places where there was nothing and just waited to see what would happen. Well, like there was towns nothing in, or... Gotcha. In I mean, terms of tourists... Literally landmarks. speaking, the, 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 uh, I did a couple, but the one that I definitely remember, it's the, and, it, and it, I use it in my book also, but it's I just got off the train in Hungary in a town where I made sure before I got off there was nothing on TripAdvisor in this town. Like, literally, TripAdvisor did not know about this town. And it was like 30, I can't remember, 30,000 people or something, just to see, like, what would happen? I didn't, I didn't even know where I was going to stay, you know, anything like that. And uh, it was pretty fun. And so I wrote about that. I got that article in. Right. But then, of course, the next few articles have to be on, like, Budapest. And right. How to stay for cheap in Budapest. Which is also something, you know, I, I also did write about cheaper travel. And it does, traveling on a budget does force you to, to forego some of those sort of luxury, not lux obviously luxuries, but also sort of the ease of following what the travel world has set out for you. Yeah. Because, you know, I don't know, if you're in China and you, have, you end up on a, a ferry boat with a whole bunch of Chinese people, you're not experiencing the tourist experience, that's for sure. Right. Well, it's interesting that what you just described, like getting off a train and finding the hotel, that used to just be how travel was. So true. You know? That it's very, very recent that we come with a bunch of expectations. It is so. It, could, it is so true. Although there were ways around it, like you talk to other travelers and you get tips, and here and and also, by the way, that's no longer as common anymore. And it's we're really losing out because you had so much more motivation to speak to other travelers about where to stay and what to do and where to go. And now it's just all on your phone. So that's in and of itself too bad. Um, I, if you ever did, you ever look at the original Arthur Fromer's Europe on five dollars a day. That original book it has, says nothing. It, it, it has like it, I think it mentions the Eiffel Tower once or something, and, and only because it's near a restaurant he's recommending. I mean, you you got in and you just had like a little essay by this guy Arthur Fromer about a few things he liked. The maps look like he wrote them out in a napkin, and he was still had a great time. And, they, and maybe they, a better time. Well, and they made that book iconic. Like, that was what they needed. And now what we needed is so molecular and so spread out. And, and, and a chapter in The Vagabond's Way that I've talked about more in this season of the podcast is that I used TripAdvisor to find a restaurant in Bucatini, Sumatra. 
and I walked through a market full of local restaurants to find the tourist restaurant that TripAdvisor had told me to go to. I had basically crowdsourced an app instead of looking for crowds. Yes. And, and it's the perfect little parallel, a parable of that, of that particular problem of travel these days is that we have so, much, so many expectations and recommendations before we're in a place that we're sort of following the trail of someone who may have been there three months ago. Right, and who may not have the same taste you have. I mean, the idea that you would see a place that looked good in a market and not say, and, and say like, oh, I better check on my phone whether this has good reviews, it's very frustrating. Yeah, and, and I, I, I find myself beholden to it even though I've been advocating for a deeper kind of travel for 20 years. Sometimes my phone, oftentimes my phone defeats me just the same. Yeah, well, you also want to make sure it doesn't say, I got food poisoning here. You know, there's, yeah. again, the safety thing is invading. You know, this thing, it's only in the last few years, and maybe not everywhere yet, where you basically, you do have your smartphone everywhere you go. Yeah. Like, it didn't, even 10 years ago, you were paying for data if you, if you could get it. You at least, when you left your hotel, had to like depend on your own smarts or your guidebook or, or your notes, paper map or, or something like that. Yeah. And now really like, more and more, you're, you're, you're just stuck with your phone. And everyone uses it. I think it's just a question of not using it to excess. Right. It's, it's that balance, and I have a whole week's worth of technology chapters in here. Because oh. technology has been an issue since, you know, the railroads, you know, got us places faster. Um, and so it's been a part of the conversation, but it's, it's never been this specific. I mean, just as basic as you, you don't have to stop and ask people for directions anymore. That's a great thing to do. Which is, a sh which is a shame because sometimes people say, where are you from? Oh, America. I saw this movie about America. Of My course. favorite singer is This American. Yeah, and, and you can, I mean, it also was the greatest excuse to talk to people. Now, I, I, you know, I, now someone did actually ask me the other day where the New York University Physical Therapy School was. And they were kind of hobbling a bit and a little older, and I was like, I guess I'll just look in my phone. But of course, right. what I thought is, why didn't you look in your phone? Right, but right. on the other hand, we had a pretty nice exchange. Yeah. And I was like, you know, that's like an old school meeting someone on the street kind of thing. And now, so now what you have is, a lot of people are outgoing. I'm sure you're pretty outgoing in your travel. I try to be outgoing. But we still might meet people like that. But more timid people can really avoid speaking to strangers. Oh, yeah. And it's too bad. Yeah, as an introvert, um, I have always depended on travel to make me more extroverted because I have to be more extroverted. Right. And I think sometimes if you ask a simple question, you can lead in conversations that you never would have expected beforehand. One of the examples in The Vagabond's Way is that when Malcolm X went on the Hajj to Mecca, he started conversations with Saudis and other uh, Muslim pilgrims, and they're like, all they want to talk about was Muhammad Ali who had just defeated Sonny Liston and Amazing. was Muslim and was a black American like, like Malcolm X was. Amazing. And suddenly, suddenly the fact that all the Muslim pilgrims wanted to talk about Muhammad Ali made Malcolm X's experience way more. Just imagine had he had the, the, the Hajj app while he was traveling well, through there. Not to mention everyone else is on their earbuds. Yeah. And he's just reading the local, he's reading like the New York newspaper on his phone instead of being immersed in where he is. That's another thing is that I used to go and read the Bangkok Post or the Hindustan Times, and I was sort of beholden to the local news economy because, of, well, there's the International Herald Tribune sometimes, which is sort of the New York International New York Times. But sure. these days, I can read my well, local. Read whatever you I want. can read whatever I want. I can have the same. Well, you're media on Twitter. Habits. You still have the same Twitter feed, or, yeah. or the same uh, Instagram feed, or, or whatever. It's a little. 
so yeah it's a little concerning when I'm in Brazil I, I try to I listen I like morning radio still mm -hmm. but I switch off I listen to New York morning radio sometimes when I'm in Brazil uh -huh. and Sao Paulo morning radio when, I, when I'm in Brazil and, it, and I sometimes think boy I really shouldn't be listening to the New York radio on here then again I get to keep I'm up to date it's all it's all about balancing it out you yeah. don't want to ignore all these great advances in technology but when you're traveling if you could just maybe not look at the news for a week or only look at the local news or something you know that's that would be a big help well it's funny we think of radio as an old an old medium now but it's only 100 years old sure and um when i wrote trip to colorado with my wife one of her favorite rituals was turning on the radio station and oh, seeing yeah. how long it takes to hear a tom petty song right <laughs> like that was her metric like uh like she had, she and her sister had this bet where you know I don't know within two hours you're going to hear Tom Petty on this stretch between Central Kansas and, that and is Eastern Colorado, and and now we can actually listen to the music that we want to listen to or the podcast. Probably and listen to the Tom Petty channel on Sirius. Well, yeah, you can listen to Tom Petty nonstop, right? And so you don't have that delightful surprise that you pump your fist when you when you finally hear Free Fallen because you're only <laughs> 60 miles from the Colorado border, so, you know? I mean, I remember driving through South Dakota, and now you really have to make an, you have to say, no, I am going to listen to the radio. And I tuned into a, a, a on one of the um, Native American, one of the reservations mm -hmm. had a radio station. They were talking about, like, political issues. Okay. Uh, and, uh, like, Dealing with Washington and the Bureau of Indian Affairs right, or whatever yeah, it's called, yeah. it's like, well, this is pretty interesting. Yeah. And I suppose I could like look for a podcast. I could have like looked for a local podcast or something. It would be great to have a because the radio is not as good as it used to be. Now the good stuff's all on podcasts. But boy, it would be great to like look up local podcasts. That'd be a great service. Well, the best local podcast. Ooh, that is a great service, and it's something I mentioned here that. Sure, you don't have the local newspaper, but now you can listen to a bunch of podcasts about Vanuatu or, or, or you know, Zimbabwe. There, or whatever. I would love to listen to some podcasts about Vanuatu. Well, actually, because I'm curious about Vanuatu, most of them are like through aid organizations, like they're trying to do community restore restoration, and so it's like an aid worker interviewing a local Vanuatu native. Sure. But like English-speaking countries, you know. Where English is, is sort of the colonial language, places like Kenya or Nigeria has some really interesting oh, local yeah. podcasts that I think travelers should give themselves permission to be a part of their diet before they go to a place. Yeah, absolutely. Don't just look on Instagram hashtag Kenya. What is what are the local Kenyan podcasters talking about? And actually, it's so interesting you brought up the, the point about English-speaking countries where English was the was the colonial language. People say like. When I people ask for advice on going to the Caribbean, the first thing they say is go to an English-speaking Caribbean country. If you're given the choice, I mean, I love the Dominican Republic, and I also have been to like Guadeloupe, and it's really nice. It's like a, literally a part of France still, but you miss out on the chance to be as social with people. So go to Jamaica, or go to Trinidad, or go to Barbados, or something Belize. like that. Yeah. Belize. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just such a great advantage to go to a place where most people are going to speak your language yeah yeah it's a little bit of a shorthand there's beaches everywhere right and yeah that's that's a whole other kind of worm just the beachness I, I think there's an interchangeability to beaches like if you show sure. yourself empty on a beach that beach that white sand beach could be almost anywhere in the world you know whereas and so you're sort of taking out the localness of it you know one of the amazing things about being in Brazil is is, is how many people end up going to Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic 
which is, first of all, not even really a part of the Dominican Republic. It's like a, a tourist island in the middle of the Dominican Republic. And they're coming from Brazil, which has amazing beaches. Whatever the marketing trick was to get Brazilians to fly like seven hours to go to beach in Punta Cana, I'm saying the exact opposite. You have a chance to go to Punta Cana. No, go to a place in Jamaica. If you get bored of the beach, go talk to people. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a great thing. Actually, that's that, that's almost worth investigating. I would read that story to find out what who lured a bunch of Brazilians to Punta Cana, a place that I have actually been because tourists end up getting herded to that place. Um, and I think a lot of tourist assumptions are filtered through sort of what we assume people want to see there, which leads me to another part where I quote you in the book. Oh. Um, and I, I think I won't read the whole chapter. I'll just read a part of it. It's from the February uh, 11th chapter. And it is, avoid making travel choices based on what is, quote, trendy. It's one of my favorite parts of your book. A central problem here, in addition to the ca causal loop wherein destinations deemed fashionable attract a disproportionate number of tourists fixated on fashion, is that the methodologies used in declaring a place trendy invariably bait invariably betray baked-in media prejudices. In Rediscovering Travel, Seth Kugel observed that the travel media tends to promote the same kinds of boutique hotels, microbreweries, and gentrified beachfronts one might find in hipster-oriented districts of one's own city. Why fly 15 hours from New York to Johannesburg to see a South African version of Brooklyn, he wrote. To me, the only reason to know what destinations are, quote, hot is to avoid them. That, that could be my favorite section of your book, so let's talk about that That's a, a good bit. one. Yeah. I must admit, I do agree with me. Okay, all right. I mean, that's me like five years ago, but I right. definitely still agree. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it just drives me nuts. I think also in, in the book, I, make a, I made like a fake, um, there used to be this New York Times feature called, I think, Surfacing, where they would talk about a fashionable neighborhood in a city that's worth visiting, and I made like a fake one where I just combined a whole bunch of the other ones, because they all sound exactly the same. And, you know, we all seek, like, weirdly, we, we, we like the familiar, but we want it to be just a slightly different, and we'd like to say, oh, look, here I am in Oslo, at having an espresso, <laughs> you know, and, and um, staying in a boutique hotel nearby with local art in it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it just, I ref literally, when people call me to do interviews, um, and I don't know who they are and what it's going to be about, I say the one thing I will not do is tell you what's hot in travel this season. Like, don't, tell, don't ask me what's a good destination to go to this year. Um, it's, it's, it's like, the, there's no right answer to that at all. I mean, maybe you go to Qatar for the World Cup because it's 2022 or something. But aside from major events, avoid, like, oh, the, I just, I just, yeah, maybe it's cheaper these, okay. Here's another one. If the, um, if the exchange rate is good, that's a good reason to go somewhere because you can get more out of it. But there's no reason to go to a place because they have a whole, the artisanal beer scene is better now than it was before. Should have gone before when you could have had the real beer that they used to make before they started making Amer double American IPA, American pale ales or whatever. Well, there's regional American versions of this too. Like I've read articles that basically say, you may think Kansas is a scary red state, but Topeka has some great microbrews. And it's like, well, 
Topeka has some other interesting things too. Could and, not agree more. And the small towns around Topeka have interesting things that have nothing to do with microbrews, but everything to do with the fact that they grow some interesting food there. And there's some interesting, you know, you want farm to table, this is where the farms are, you know. I could not agree more. I, I, I definitely, I mean, I, trying to remember my trip to Kansas. I'm sure it would be embarrassing for you to, to read it, but I did drive, uh, I did do this trip where I, um, instead of going the East Coast to the West Coast, uh, like a road trip, I went from Baton Rouge to Fargo. Okay. And I yeah, did like yeah. the 90 degree turned American road trip, going straight through the middle, because I realized basically all the states I had never been to were basically that, that road. Did you go to a rodeo in Kansas? Oh, I I went to a state fair. Okay. Uh, where which my first state fair ever. I, I'm not state fair. Sorry, county, county fair. fair. Yeah. And I love county fairs now, yeah. and it was great. And the kids, I'm like, what are these kids doing, walking these cows and pigs around? I'm like, what are you doing? And then I realized this is like a huge thing that they're, um, you know, they've raised the, uh, they've raised these uh, animals and now they're auctioning them off and... Uh, it's 4-H. It's 4-H. It's 4-H. Like, and it's everywhere. It's yeah. even in New York State, which yeah. I would, of course, I don't know why I wouldn't have known that. But I had a great time. I went to, um, I ended up seeing a performance of The Wizard of Oz in a local playhouse, which is kind of funny because it's in Kansas? in Kansas. Okay, wow. It's a little meta. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was just weird. And I went to a, I feel like I went to a coal mining museum. Yeah, that's in southeastern, that's down by, in southeastern Kansas. Yeah. yeah. There's a giant abandoned uh, coal scoop called Big Brutus. I feel like there was a lot of fried chicken involved. Don't you have a you fried chicken? Chicken annies and chicken Yeah, that's exactly right. I, that's I feel like my podcasts always go off on a Kansas tangent, but yes, you went to Chicken Annie's and Chicken Mary's, which yeah. are the competing chicken restaurants yeah. in Pittsburgh. And weren't they started because they're the, 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 those people's husbands were hurt in coal mine accidents and they had to make a living or something like that? This is a long time ago. My details are a little foggy. No, it's, it's good, and I think that... That shows that you can go past the brew pub angle. You can go sort of the weird local um, angle. And it's not, I think I often use Kansas as a metaphor for what are you missing about places that you go to or what are you assuming yeah. you should find in places you go to. Um, and now there's brew pubs everywhere uh, and actually wineries are all over the place too. But what else is there? You know, if you just sit still for a while, what can you see that you hadn't expected to see before. I mean, if you love beer, go, you can go to the brew pub in Kansas. That's a great idea. Yeah. But if you don't really care about beer, why would you go to the brew pub? Because now they have a brew pub. It doesn't really make much because sense. it becomes a, a metaphor for a certain Williamsburg sensibility. Absolutely. Um, that that, that um, uh, the fashionable districts of this city are evoked by this, this, and this. So as a journalist who's looking to recommend for our audience, we're looking ironically for things that they can find in their own neighborhood. Yeah, I remember reading some piece about Puerto Rico and it was a guy from Brooklyn writing it and he was like on this adventure in Puerto Rico and all he did was find places where like they, every restaurant sounded like it was in Brooklyn <laughs> except with Puerto Rican ingredients and the, the neighborhood seemed like it was full of hipsters and I was like, okay, that's a terrible article. Right. That's a terrible article. You've basically just, and I think it actually ended with something like, um, and as I relaxed on my beach chair, I thought, boy, this feels a lot like home. Right. I'm like, oh. oh. 
I mean, that was I was really mocking that article in my book. I think. I, I think there might be a structural level to the travel writing industry that sort of makes this inevitable a little oh. bit, because I came into the travel writing world from the dirtbag backpacker world, and my first book, Vagabonding, is sort of about go to a place and figure things out. And so my that's first a book I've read, by the way. Okay, awesome. Okay. But but with that mindset, as I was working for institutional travel media, I would come in and say, well. Let's, let's talk about skills that can make travelers smart enough to get their own recommendations. And my editor is like, no, we need to figure out, if they go to Kathmandu, we should really tell them where to get an espresso. And it's like, why, why would they want an espresso in Kathmandu? It's just these assumptions, these office-bound assumptions that are sometimes driven by personal sensibilities, but also by knowing what your audience and your advertisers are interested in, yeah. but at a structural level, th that sort of dirtbag wandering into a new neighborhood by accident experience isn't really getting communicated very well, often. I, I wonder if this is a reason to, this is kind of an upside of the decline of traditional travel writing. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Because, you know, people don't tear articles out of the newspaper anymore for when they're going to Paris or something like that. And they are using these apps, which definitely have disadvantages compared to the traditional travel writing recommendations, but they definitely also have an advantage, which is they are what you make of them, right? right. I mean, if you just go into TripAdvisor and look at the top 10 places to go, then you're essentially replicating the old-fashioned uh, travel writing. Right. But yeah. if you, like, my classic thing is to take the list of places to go, which is now hidden under a whole bunch of ads and sales and services on TripAdvisor, it didn't used to be and flip it and go to like the bottom half of places to go, you find a lot of really interesting places. Ah, ah. Um, and it, so it's there for you. The data is out there. It's just how you filter it. And if you let other people filter it for you, that stinks. But let me tell you something like the 1,822nd best place to go in Paris uh -huh. might be pretty cool. I might have to look that up and put it in the show notes. The yeah. 1,822nd place to go in Par Paris. Uh, no, I think sometimes, too, um, it, it, we're sort of running to stand still. There's a Red Queen aspect of this because editors had limitations um, and they sort of had analysis of what their audience wanted. Well, algorithms are the same way and algorithms are even more deceitful and sometimes they find things we want from the low part of our brainstem mm. instead of the more complicated oh, yeah. part of our brain. And uh, an example I might give is that I followed a certain travel influencers on Instagram because I was interested in them. And then the search bar suddenly wanted, it was suddenly showing all women in bikinis. And so I think what happened is just the lower part of my brainstem clicked on a few of these travel influencers who were wearing bikinis. And the, the algorithm thought that's all I wanted. You know, they, they just wanted dude stuff. To be fair, if you randomly tap on things in Instagram, you end up with a screen full of women in bikinis. Really, really? I'm pretty sure. Okay. I mean, I've heard people complain about this before. They're like, why? Like, my girlfriend is not liking the fact that on my For You page or whatever, or whatever it's called in Instagram, why are all these women in bikinis? <laughs> I literally do not tap on women in bikinis. So, it, again, it's the algorithm. Seth, I feel much better about things. it because I, I, I thought maybe the algorithm thought I was a lech or something. And my wife actually looked at the search bar, my wife who does not use Instagram, and it's like, why, why, is, why is the search bar all women in bikinis? And so I literally had to Google how to clean up your search thing on Instagram. Yeah. I had to sort of 
press not interested in all the bikini photos just to get it out of my search it's, feed. I don't mind bikinis. I just don't want to see them all the time. But you're totally right that the same thing is happening much more subtly when you're deciding where to travel or what yeah. to do in the place you're traveling to. And you just have to really fight it as best you can. How do we break out of the bad habits of travel? Your book was Rediscovering Travel. How, four years after your book came out, do we continue to rediscover travel and discipline ourselves into risking new ways to travel. I mean, it's the same way I, I have to discipline myself not to go to the fast food, 18 fast food places I, I go by and seek out the place with a salad. I mean, <laughs> you're being pushed to do the things that everyone wants you to do, the unhealthy things, be it food or travel. Um, I think one way, to, good way to start is just to pick a day of the week or two days of your trip don't plan anything and just experiment with seeing what happens, going to the 1,000th best place in Istanbul or something like that, or being in Italy and just walking in a random direction and having the first pizza you see instead of the one that's highly rated. Um, do it for an afternoon or for a day or something like that and see, you know, I bet in many cases people who people will have the best day. I mean, not every case, because sometimes you'll do nothing, it'll be boring. But if you go around, you're willing to talk to people, maybe you even leave your phone at, at the hotel or the Airbnb, I bet a third of those people, that'll be the best day of their trip. And then you do it again, and it's another third. And then you finally begin to realize, wow, it really is fun to talk to people, to randomly enter places, and just to let things happen. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Seth Kugel's book, Rediscovering Travel, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.